Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. Today's episode is brought to you by Simulation One Software. It helps everyone's favorite actress, Simone, to be herself every day. And welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions and speculates wildly about the answers without ever figuring out what the answers might actually be. <laughs> uh, with your host, Ben Siders, that's me, and the other guy is Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, as in the captain of the Enterprise. We are IP lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter at Benjamin Siders. You can find Kirk at KirkDMN, and you can follow this podcast on Twitter at LGGPod. We, uh, what are we, episode, season two, episode three? Season two, episode three. Yeah, we can't quite do episode numbers anymore. I think they're getting a little too big. Yeah, we just, we just, got, we just asked our, our sound engineer, what episode we're on, and, and he knows, but we don't. So, <laughs> anyway, we are uh, we are joined today by special returning guest uh, Charlotte Claypool, who is here to tell us about uh, rights of publicity and some interesting cases, kind of following on on our last episode. Hey guys, thanks for having me on again. Glad to have you on again. I mean, I think everybody loved your last episode. We wanted to even sort of die in to get you back on the show here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, if you guys ha- haven't listened to it, Charlotte joined us uh, last season to talk about uh, gaming law, gambling law, uh, and that was. Season Season 1, Episode 18, which is also just Episode 18. <laughs> so go check that out if you haven't listened to it yet. And uh, um, Charlotte, for, uh, we have, uh, I, I think, we're going to get into this in a little bit. I think we have a lot of new listeners this uh, now. It seems somehow. that way. Uh, so for all the new people who uh, maybe haven't caught the prior episode, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice? Sure. Uh, I am a member in the IP litigation group at Lewis Rice. I've been with the firm for a total of five years. I took a little break for a couple years and worked in-house for Whirlpool Corporation in their advertising law practice group. Uh, in my free time, I enjoy cooking and horseback riding and cosplay. Yeah, but were you talking about the fact that you were a cosplayer on this? Was it Electra? Is that right? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and weren't you working on a Black Panther I was. Uh, during our last podcast, I was working on a Black Panther costume for the premiere. Did you ever finish it? Uh, yes, and it went over quite well. Awesome. I was a proud Wakandan. <laughs> very cool. We, we are jealous. <laughs> Hopefully not one of the various ones that dies in Infinity War. But, uh, <laughs> Shh, I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> Have you seen it now? P- people die in Infinity War. Wait, I don't think I gave away any spoilers. Spoiler alert. <laughs> have you seen it yet, Kurt? No, I still haven't seen it either. Charlotte, did you see Infinity War? No, I have War? not seen yeah. No, either. Um, well, how about, so it's the week after Thanksgiving. Uh, how was everybody's turkey day? No takers? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll start off as to what it was. I mean, we had, we had sort of the classic, you know, like family Thanksgiving. It was, it was fun, you know, sitting around, ate too much, you know, watched too much TV. It's what you, just, you do on Thanksgiving. Your family's mostly in town. Yeah, my family's mostly in town, so it's we tend to have, especially Thanksgiving tends to be here. Um, the out-of-town guests tend to come here just because it's, I think that's more fun. Easier. The great thing about it, we have them too, is it's because there's just a bunch of small kids in the family now. They just disappear. Isn't it great? Um, yeah. <laughs> and so it all of a sudden, like, it's, you know, where are the kids? They've been quiet for you know, five hours. Who cares? They've been quiet for five hours. (laughs) (laughs) So, Charlotte, how about you? Uh, We were here too. My family's mostly local, so it was my mother's year to host Thanksgiving. I hosted last year, um, so I got a break there, but then two days after Thanksgiving, I hosted Friendsgiving at my house. So, (laughs) 
uh, I got to do all of the cooking <laughs> again, <laughs> but it was a lot more fun. Um, a bunch of my friends and I do a Thanksgiving punch recipe contest Very with cool. okay, blind taste testing, which is a lot of fun and also not so much fun the day after. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> I don't follow you, Charlotte. What are you talking about? <laughs> we, we, had, we had a friend who actually used to do an event called Beers Giving. Oh, and, yeah. and the requirement of beers giving is that it's essentially a potluck, except every dish must be cooked with beer, and you must bring the beer in bottles or however form in addition. Um, mm. So you can have sort of in conjunction with it, which gets really interesting because like there's a lot of things that would make sense to have beer in, but the highlight is always I know he would uh, he would um, brine the turkey mm-hmm. in um, Belgian tripel basically, really, um, which was incredibly good. Really? <laughs> yeah, that takes a lot of beer. Yeah. If you're cheapest of beers. I was going to say, not cheap beer at that. Yeah, I think he went through like an entire case of big bottles when he wow. did it. But, uh, Along those lines, my wife this year, uh, this was by far our most successful turkey, uh, which I'm going to take 100% credit for without any justification because I did all the basting because she was gone that morning. <laughs> but she, uh, she took the gravy and added bourbon to it. Uh, which was very good. Ooh. So yeah, yeah. I, when I, she didn't tell me she'd done that, so I tried it. I'm like, this is the most amazing gravy <laughs> I've ever had. She's like, it should be. There's a bunch There's of high west in, in there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we also saw uh, Wreck It Ralph too uh, Thanksgiving weekend. I took the kids out to see that. Have you guys seen that one yet? Nope. Nope. Uh, I kind of want to see it though. It's pretty good. It's not as good as the first one. Um, it, it's sort of. It, it is what it sounds like. They get out onto the internet, and there's a lot of internet <laughs> jokes. I didn't feel like the script was quite as as tight and and sort of well crafted as the first one. There's a couple moments where like things happen, and and they happen according to the the you know the, the artificial rules of the Wreck It Ralph universe. And if you saw the first one, you'd be thinking, I don't remember that being part of the rules of how this world works. <laughs> then they explain it. Oh, yeah, that's how that works. So, whereas in the first one, a lot more of that was sort of set up in advance. Like, glitches can't leave their game. There's, like, things like that mm-hmm. that the plot sort of depends on, and they sort of lazily introduce it just when they need to. Okay. Sort of a deus ex machina type uh, thing. But yeah. it, was, it was still good, very enjoyable. Uh, the, the climax of the film is, is a little... Disconcerting, <laughs> like diplomatic. <laughs> no, it's good, but like visually, it's kind of weird to watch. Like, there's a giant Wreck It Ralph monster made of little tiny Wreck It Ralph monsters, and they're all sort of squiggling around. <laughs> and if you look at the screen for too long, it's like looking at like a wriggling pile of worms. I don't know. I didn't, <laughs> I, didn't I didn't like the visuals, but uh, it was a good movie. It was funny. I don't know, but my favorite with Wreck It Ralph one still is Sugar Rush, and the fact that I was singing that like stupid theme song for like three hours <laughs> afterwards. Yeah, we, we were too. In fact, I think I actually downloaded. I think I bought a copy off iTunes because my kids were really into the soundtrack for a while, and uh, they like to, to dance to it. Uh, anything else you guys have been watching lately? So I actually, um, I don't know if we talked about it previously, so I've been catching up on movies and using that on my treadmill. Um, I just finished Arrival, um, oh, yeah. which oh, we were talking that? about. I loved Arrival, and the comment we made with it, to my mind, like Arrival's classic science fiction, as in it's science it just happens to be fictional. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the the concepts behind it, there's some really sort of great scenes. It's really a discussion of what is language and how does language affect your perception of the world. And that's really mm-hmm. what the, the thing's about. What I really liked about it is that there's, like, scenes in it because they talk about, like, they eventually have to communicate using written communication because basically we can't make the cor- correct sounds and they're not sure the sounds connect to the writing. probably give a quick overview of the plot. For yeah, so the basic thing is aliens arrive – 
they're trying to communicate with them. You have a linguist arrive there and try to figure out how to communicate yeah. with them. They, they arrive and don't immediately set about destroying the planet or <laughs> yes. enslaving us all. It's not so. Independence Day, yeah. <laughs> but um, but yeah, that kind of thing. And so it's trying to figure out anything we know. We obviously they can talk to him. They appear to be fairly friendly, but they're standoffish. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no like verbal language, right? They have a verbal language where they sort of click and buzz. Yeah, and we can't like really understand it. Yeah, and we and they later determine they say at one point in time during it once they figure out the written line that the, they get written language communication, which this linguist does. She makes the comment at one point in time during the movie that the sounds don't appear to have any connection to the written language, so she's not even sure whether or not the sounds yep. are language. Um, but the key is it's a lot of written uh, written language about it. But one of the key things is that it's a very hard language to write because they talk about the fact that it's uh, it's the entire sentence is prepared at once. Mm-hmm. So they said it would be like writing from both ends of a sentence simultaneously and meeting in the middle. So you not only huh. have to know what the sentence says, but exactly how long it's going to be before you start writing. Yeah. Wow. And it, that's kind of a cool presentation. But one of the things is when they're trying to do the written language, the way they do it is she's like picking runes on her computer, and you see every time she does it, she like you see her tablet, you see her touching the runes, and then it shows like behind her you see a computer like put the thing together and then you see it kind of adjust it into the right shape and yep. then display it which is exactly what you'd expect like the, basically you're feeding this kind of thing into a computer and then the computer is saying okay like it's supposed to fit in this area let me adjust it put it together and make sense which is something you as a human we just couldn't do yeah I, I thought Arrival I've also seen it probably one of the best science fiction movies I've seen in the yeah. last five or ten years and again it's, it's hard science I mean that's the it thing is. with it I mean you know, it's, it's an unusual science like it's really about linguistics and, and syntax and yeah. you know, language structure, and, and you're right. The the theme really is about how the way that we learn to communicate affects how we think about things. And uh, you know, the, the aliens in this movie, their language is all based on circular structures, which ah. also influences how they think about the universe and conceive things. And that's a little bit of foreshadowing for things that happen in the movie. We yeah, won't get into doesn't spoilers. Doesn't get it too much away. We won't get into spoilers. No, they, they established that within the first 15 minutes yeah. of the movie. But, so um, that was yeah, so that was a pretty cool movie. And then the other one I watched, I just watched Plastic Galaxy, um, which was something I. Kind of found literally on, on Prime here, just looking through it, which is essentially a documentary on Star Wars toys. Um, oh. It's what I'm what coming with it is, is I actually found it a very interesting movie and just sort of seeing the background. They interview a bunch of Kenner execs, like major collectors. They talk about like weird, you know, things in the history, like prototypes that never got made, like the Boba Fett whose jet back actually launches yeah. missiles. Um, that was what was advertised, but never sold, stuff like that. Oh, well, there are people who swear that they got one. Yeah, and that's not true. That's, yeah. I mean, I, I collected Transformers toys for a while, and there are people who swear that they got a blue blue streak as well in, in a box and it never was there. There's like phenomenon of that of people having collective false memories. Yeah. Have you read yeah. any oh, yeah. articles about that? Oh yeah. Like there's whole groups of people who they're aware they of remember these things, Nelson right? Mandela dying years, <laughs> years ago. <laughs> it's, it's wild stuff as to that. What, what I basically say about the movie is if you're kind of into toy collecting and stuff like that, it's a fun movie because it gives you a lot of like interesting documentary stuff. I wouldn't say it's great filmmaking. It's to my mind it's like it's Somebody who's probably just graduated from film school or about to graduate from film school, like a final project, it's got some campy special effects in it that it totally doesn't need and like transitions. It, doesn't it sounds need. like something where the mm-hmm. subject matter is interesting enough that it's easy to write a documentary, yeah. but probably hard to pull it off and make it look super polished. And that's the thing is it really doesn't look very polished. I think that, you know, like you read the reviews and I think a lot of the comments were that, you know, it doesn't look good. And it's like, well, it's not a polished movie, yeah. but it's a very interesting movie and just sort of it's, what yeah, it presents. It's still making it interesting for documentary, especially. Yeah. And recognizing that, you know, and I think it's very true, the, the Star Wars toys completely changed the, both the toy world and the entertainment world in many respects. And they really talk about why and how and like what this did to Kenner and like stuff like that. And it's just, it's really interesting. Charlotte, how about you? Anything interesting you've seen lately? Uh, I actually recently bought a subscription to curiosity.com, which is the all documentary 
version of Netflix. Mm -hmm. I'm a big documentary. (laughs) So I've been checking out some things there. Um, Most recently, I was watching things that I've seen a hundred times before because we have a tradition over the weekend after Thanksgiving. That's when we binge watch all the fantastic Christmas movies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Christmas Vacation and then (laughs) continually drop quotes from it for the next 48 hours. (laughs) I was going to take the garbage out the other day when we got that big snowstorm and I just had, I was running late because I could hear the truck coming. So I just got like my robe on. I threw my, like my dress shoes on and I'm running outside to take the trash out. And as I'm getting to the curb outside in the snow with my robe on, my neighbor comes by in his car, rolls down the window and says, morning, Griswold. (laughs) So Jared, if you're listening, you are a legend. Uh, other interesting things. So my my five year old currently is obsessed with a movie on Netflix called Next Gen. Did you guys hear of this one? No. no. Not Next Gen. I think Next Generation Star Trek. Yeah, that's what <laughs> I think. No, it's so it was made. I don't know who made it. Uh, it's on Netflix only, but the cast has John Krasinski from The Office, Michael Pena, um, uh, David Cross is in it, uh, Jason uh, Sudeikis. That is how you pronounce his name? Sudeikis. Is in it? I don't know. Um, uh, Constance Wu, who was uh, recently made very famous from uh, Crazy Rich Asians. If you've seen that, okay. I haven't yet. And then uh, the main character is voiced by Charlene Yi, um, who, if you don't know who that is, she played the, uh, the frequently um, um, enlightened uh, girlfriend in Knocked Up, uh, who was um, she was high all the time in the, in the show. Um, uh, Jody was her character. So uh, a, a great cast, but this movie flew completely under the radar. At least to me, it did. I'd never heard of it. Uh, Charlie found it, my son. John Krasinski voices a like a, a robot, and uh, the plot is, is basically a story about dealing with loss and um, uh, abandonment and things like that. It's It's okay. But it's weird because the visuals are very, like, kid movie-ish. The robot is very shiny and has a happy faces and it's very expressive. And it's, it's John Krasinski, who's, like, the mm-hmm. nicest guy. Uh, but then, like, the themes are, are, are a little on the PG-13 side. There's a lot of sort of comic book-type action. Um, I mean, I guess Charlie likes it, and he's five, so uh, it works. But it's, it's, a, it's a little... The themes are a little um, misaligned with what it looks like. So you're watching it and thinking it's going to be like a little kid movie, but then it's it's kind of not. So anyway, it's an interesting one. It's, or it's worth seeing if, if, you're, uh, okay. if you're into just uh, animated sci-fi. But uh, other news, uh, podcast stuff. Kirk, yes. November. Yep. November's been ridiculous so far. Yeah, yeah um, apparently what we did last the last episode, everybody liked. I, I guess. I, I haven't figured this out yet. So for, for context, the best month of this podcast for a while was our first month. We launched, yep. launched in August of last year with six episodes in the can, and it took until this last May before we had more listeners than we had that first month. Uh, and then May, June, July all each set new records, and then in August we went on sabbatical and didn't have a whole lot of listeners because there was no new content. And then we came back uh, this fall and uh, set a new record for us, at least, for listeners. Uh, November blew that away. We we exceeded our prior record by 20%. And it had been creeping up about 5% at a time. And for every reason, y'all must have really loved <laughs> the NCAA football game. because <laughs> And 20% wasn't that we added one new listener for the you know, right. five we already had. No, right. it was actually no, we're, we're, a we're, large number. Yeah. Uh, we, we, uh, November absolutely crushed it. So um, y- y'all love that episode. Uh, apparently, it was it is in our top five most listened to episodes of all time. Um, and that's saying something because 
that one's only been out for a couple weeks. Yeah, and we've had other episodes out over a year. Been out for over a year. So, um, so those of you who are joining in, who are new, who like that episode, uh, let us know why. First of all, uh, we'd, we'd love to hear from you. But uh, uh, thank you for coming back and listening to more episodes. And we think you're going to like this episode even more. Yes, indeed. Uh, one more thing before we get to the sort of the meat and potatoes of this episode, we have a Sabak lawsuit update, Kirk. Yep. Um, for those of you who don't remember, we talked about the Sabak um, lawsuit previously. I mean, Ben raised it. Uh, Coming to trying to essentially make the Sabak game. They from actually Star got a registered Wars. trademark yeah. on it too. Um, yeah, and then went and got a registered trademark. Um, and this was uh, they they got the registered trademark. They got around the trademark. Solo came out. Yeah, they they got it like uh, I think like six months in adv- advance. Okay, and then. Um, yeah, and then Lucas filed uh, an action to have the trademark canceled yep. and then uh, filed a lawsuit against the company uh, for infringement of Lucas's uh, copyrights and trademarks, I yeah. think. Lucasfilm, right? Lucasfilm, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then the trademark cancellation proceeding was suspended and then the company filed a counterclaim against Lucasfilm for their Han Solo movie infringing this other company. <laughs> the company's called Ren Ventures for infringing their Sabak trademark. Yeah. And then they filed a different lawsuit against Lucasfilm on top of that. So, a real mess. Charlotte's looking yeah. at me very quizzically. <laughs> that's a lot of lawyers. Yeah. That is a lot of lawyers. Uh, a, a pretty gutsy move for a company that's, you know, I think Kirk, we would agree, was flagrantly taking somebody else's concepts. <laughs> at least, yeah. I mean, they were they were definitely using something which, you know, came from somewhere else. I think we, as we discussed in conjunction with this, whether or not it rose to the level of trademark infringement was an interesting legal question yeah. they were because trying there to was squeeze, no necessarily yeah. go- necessary good that had been sold under the name Sabak prior to that. They were definitely trying to squeeze between the cracks yeah. of copyright and and trademark. Yeah, there's no question about it. You know, this was this was this was walking the line. <laughs> yeah, they they did not walk the line. They fell right off. <laughs> as, as as now has come down, I think that's the thing we got from the update. Is yeah, this was not walking the line. Yeah. So uh, the case is over. Lucasfilm won, uh, not because the lawsuit went forward. It it, it settled. But I'm going to put settled in air quotes here. Uh, normally, when a case settles, uh, and Charlotte, you know this from doing IP litigation, you write a settlement agreement. It's usually mm-hmm. confidential. It never sees the light of day. Yep. And the only thing you tell the court is, we settled. We're done. Mm-hmm. And occasionally there's some statement that like the parties don't agree. Yeah. This, or they don't, they, oh, know, there's they almost always no admission of no respons- admission yeah, responsibility. responsibility, anything along mm-hmm. those lines that's made specific. That's not what happened here. <laughs> not at all. This was a stipulated consent judgment and permanent injunction. Charles oh. looked at me like, oh my. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so Ren Ventures had to dismiss its counterclaim with prejudice. It had to dismiss its other lawsuit with prejudice. Just, just so we know, like people who aren't involved in legal sort of worlds here, with prejudice means they can never raise it yeah. again. We dismiss it and we will never raise it again. Uh, they had to voluntarily surrender their trademark registration. Uh, the stipulated injunctions, or permanent injunction means that you can never do whatever the injunction says you cannot do. Uh, they had to, they, the, the injunction prohibits them from using Sabak at all in any way, uh, but it also includes um, uh, more. So here, here's this a quote from the order. Uh, Ren Ventures is prohibited from, quote, using any element of plaintiff's uh, Star Wars franchise, that's plaintiff's Lucasfilm, in connection with the sale, offering, distribution, marketing, or other exploitation of any services and products of any defendant or otherwise engaging in any other activity that infringes, whether directly or indirectly, any Lucasfilm copyright. So that's any element of Star Wars. Yeah. Not only can they not use Sabak, they can't. 
can't even whisper the word X-Wing in a dark alley. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's the key about this. Is it's, This is not just saying they can't use Star Wars trademarks or anything like that. They can't use anything associated Any with the franchise. element. I mean, element, yeah. that is broad. That is broad. That is everything. Like, have you seen those Ad at Walker uh, Christmas sweaters? <laughs> yeah. Like, can't even make one of those. Yo, I, think Luke, I think Lucasfilm licenses those. I'm sure though. they do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if not, there's another lawsuit coming. <laughs> uh, and the cherry on top is they had to pay Lucasfilm $470,000 in damages. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, so that, that sounds like a loss to me. Not a, <laughs> not a yeah, I think that's yeah. where we say it. it's a settlement, but I think we say that Lucasfilm won this. You know, my, my take of this is, the, and I, I remember we always used to refer to this in law school, you guys probably did the same thing. This, this is the, the result, which is the thou shalt not. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, and we also, we talked in the last episode about how the uh, the character for hire companies, yep. uh, the, Disney's lawsuit against them is going forward. They're also, I think, trying to skirt that line between copyright and trademark mm-hmm. and, and get away with something. Um, and this this kind of looked to me like Disney really uh, flexing a little bit and yep. saying, uh, you're next. I've also got to wonder if it involves like the uh, the lightsaber training, lightsaber, like mm-hmm. you have guys doing that kind of stuff and he's just with exercise and sword fighting training and stuff like that. I wonder well, what's if that's interesting also is, I mean, Lucasfilm, and I think even now Disney, I mean, Disney's historically been more aggressive in enforcement than I think Lucasfilm yeah. was. But oh, Lucasfilm was very specifically not aggressive. Yeah, even now, like there's all kinds of Star Wars fan stuff out there that, that I think is mostly let go. I don't see a lot of it that's, that's truly just Star Wars fan content. Yep. Being taken offline, but this was different. This was a company that was. Oh, this is clearly a very commercial, commercial venture, and yeah. I mean, then you also remember. I mean, they they turtled up and struck back. You know, this was not something yeah. where they basically and, said, "Okay, we'll agree." In a pretty audacious manner, yes. I mean, they accused Lucasfilm. <laughs> you know, that'd be like 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 me making a, a Windows program and then suing Microsoft. You know, for infringing <laughs> yes. my Windows when yeah. I got the idea. From, like, it was just strange. And I mean, I don't know if there's more to it than what it looks like. Just on the surface, I did not understand. The strategy, and I think the the brazenness of the uh, of of Ren Ventures' approach to this may yep. have motivated mm-hmm. the severity, the severity of this <laughs> settlement. Yeah, the settlement is in quotes. This is uh, your company is now over. Thank you for trying. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think I think it's worth and I think it's a good sort of thing to point out with this. You know, we talk about in this show a lot of the idea that we don't know what the outcome of cases is going to be. This is a rare one where we do. Yeah, this one we really clearly do know what the outcome of this is, and it also sets. This one sets a very clear ground of what you can't do. I mean, it's... It, it's oh, yeah. I mean, we have a judgment now. So now yeah. we have race judicata. We have, uh, uh, you know, claim issue preclusion, I issue guess. preclusion, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's other... Um, and, yeah, I think that's it's a very important thing. I think it's a very valuable thing to sort of note that, you know, hey, we have this decision on this. And it's also one that, you know, for those who have been longtime listeners of the show or for those who go through the back catalog, you know, you'll hear we were talking about this when it first came down. We didn't know how this case was going to come down. Mm-mm. There were some interesting legal questions here. We now have a very definitive answer. Yeah. Now, again, it is still a settlement, so it's It's a stipulated. It's, it's, not, it's not a finder of fact looking yes. at it and saying, Lucasfilm, you're right, and Ren, you're wrong. Yeah. It's Ren saying, I can't out-lawyer Disney, so we're yeah, done. A court could technically still overrule this as the law. You know, you can't necessarily yeah. say this is the law. Yeah, it's, it's a judgment that's going to be effective and enforceable between these two parties. Yes. Um, so, so there is that. And there's some other language in there about this company can't also go make a new company and do something similar. Mm. They third-partied into the judgment an individual uh, that was involved in this. Uh, this. This seemed to have really gotten rankled the ire of, yeah. of Disney. So, uh, but like I said, it, it kind of felt like a shot across the bow to me. Like this is this is going to be the new normal. So uh, you mm-hmm. know, tread carefully. 
Speaking of the new normal, uh, Charlotte, this is going to speak to your last episode. Just last night, and uh, this is last night as we're recording this. Yeah, so recording this on the Thursday come before down, it launches. Yeah, what is next week, seventh would have been last night. Yeah, twenty seventh. Yeah, I can't keep track of dates. Uh, last night, late last night, the FTC uh, affirmed a pledge to investigate loot boxes, following up on a request by New Hampshire Senator Maggie Hassan or Hassan. I don't know how to pronounce her name. Um, there's some articles out there on this on IGN, and I found one on Polygon. Uh, the issue apparently. This is a quote from Senator Hassan. Uh, loot boxes are now endemic in the video game industry and are present in everything from casual smartphone games to the newest high-budget releases, end quote. Uh, the senator added that loot boxes will represent a $50 billion industry by the year 2022. That's really kind of amazing. Wow. That is pretty amazing. Uh, the concern is that it is uh, a close link to gambling and won't somebody please protect the children. <laughs> uh, so, Charla, what does it mean to say that the FTC is going to investigate? So, in my experience, this is the start of a long course that I would say 50 to 70% of the time ends in the FTC giving some sort of formal guidance document that's going to be codified in the CFR telling us what the rules are. Mm -hmm. This is one of those areas, as you'll remember from our last podcast, that we talked about, you know, when do you cross the line in gaming from recreational gaming activity to being an illegal lottery. Um, and it's something we've all kind of speculated about, well, here's where we think the line is. Here's where some of the court cases are taking us. But I think this is probably the first step in the FTC saying, well, it's time to define where the line is. Mm -hmm. um, they followed a very similar process a few years ago before they released the now very famous endorsement and testimonial guides for blogger engagements. Uh, for the listeners who aren't familiar, these are guides that talk about what you can and cannot do when you are hiring uh, social media influencers, celebrity bloggers, in order to do reviews of your product. The FTC has for decades had a rule that if you are hiring a celebrity or an expert to give a testimonial about your product, you have to disclose the fact that you've paid them to do it. Now, up until the rise of Facebook, Twitter, etc., that was a pretty clear standard to follow because if you pay Michael Jordan to go on TV wearing Nike, you know, it's pretty clear. You paid Michael Jordan to go on TV wearing Nike. Where this gray area came in was, let's put it in the gaming context, you know, some of these YouTube gamers um, who have millions of followers all of a sudden start getting games in the mail from mm -hmm. Microsoft and from Nintendo and saying, hey, we love your stuff. We want to send you a free game. I hope you and your viewers enjoy it. Um, and then the question becomes, well, does that influencer have to disclose when they're playing that game in their videos that they got it for free? Would that influence a viewer's perception of the feedback that that influencer is giving on the game? I, think about it. Mm -hmm. If you know the guy got it for free um, in the hotel industry they're dealing with it a lot now a lot of these travel blogger influencers you know that do these stunning reviews of hotels around the <laughs> world well 
I'm going to look at your review a lot differently if I know that you got a week at the Four Seasons Maui for free <laughs> in exchange for reviewing it. And, and I would not, say and not in the cheapest room either. No. <laughs> I'll say nice things about any hotel that gives me yeah. a week someplace warm for free. Hint, hint. So, <laughs> hint, hint. <laughs> Ron, officially looking for sponsors, but it sounds like maybe Charlotte is. <laughs> that's, that's, well, I mean, I believe, you know, talking about bloggers, I believe a podcast would qualify as that as well. So if we have any paid sponsors that would like to send us to Maui for a week, <laughs> we, will, we will gladly admit you're a paid sponsor. <laughs> yeah, so uh, when all that was going on, the FTC followed a very similar course. They started with uh, an investigation into blogger and influencer practices. And then there were a series of public hearings. Um, and, you know, there was comment back and forth. And after about two years, we got the updated endorsement and testimonial guides that gave specific examples of different online blogging influencer activities and examples of do you need to disclose in this context or not Mm -hmm. so that and now we have seen um, from the enforcement side you know their first step was they sent a group of nasty grams to an undisclosed <laughs> list of advertisers yep. uh, saying, hey, as you know, we've released these guides. And as you know, they say that this is what you should be doing. We see an activity from your company that does not appear to comply. Start complying mm-hmm. or you'll be hearing from us again and not in just a nice letter. So basically we can expect them to to examine this if there's need for rules, put the rules out there, and then give these gaming companies some time to voluntarily comply with them before they start showing up with a sock full of quarters. <laughs> Typically, yes. Um, they do also sometimes you know, pick a company to make an example and make a statement right out of the gate. And with the endorsement and testimonials, it was uh, Lord and Taylor who got mm. the business end of that and ended up in a consent decree with the FTC. Who would that be for gaming? Like, what's a game that, that everybody loves that plays it, but everybody who doesn't play it hates it? <laughs> <laughs> the only one I can think of is Fortnite. Fortnite is Everybody over the age of 30 hates Fortnite. <laughs> the, the thing I think is interesting about this, and I think, you know, we talked to it earlier when sort of the last time we were on the show, sort of what is it, you know, what is it between gambling and sort of things like that. It does seem like, and I just know this from some of the games I play, the nature of loot boxes has changed in probably the last six months. It used to be, you know, yes, it's a loot box, and it includes one of these five things that are all sort of roughly equal value. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now it seems like a lot of times what it is is it's it includes it may include one of these five things that's of roughly equal value, but there's a 5% chance it includes this one thing of much greater value. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm saying value in the idea of like how much it would cost directly in the game or how uh-huh. much people would want it, yeah. um, stuff like that. I have to wonder if maybe this is a little bit in response to that, that sort yep. of these loot boxes are changing a bit to the idea that mm-hmm. there is a little more of a gambling aspect. Like games I play, people have commented about not wanting to put money into the game because they're like, I don't want to spend $100 for yeah. a 20% chance. Yep. I'll gladly spend $200 for a certainty, but I won't spend $100 for a 20% chance or a 50% chance. We should yeah. probably talk about, just, just really quickly, Charlotte, what are the elements, traditionally the elements of gambling? What makes something gambling versus not? Sure. So we talked about this a little on our last podcast, but there are three elements in uh, pretty much every state of what constitutes illegal gambling. The statutes word it a little differently, but the three elements are There has to be a prize, so you have to be giving away something of value. You have to be giving it away by chance. So random, you know, 
random numbers, uh, some element of chance, and then the entrant has to give some sort of what we call consideration in order to have a chance to win the prize. Now, the most traditional uh, element, you know, the most traditional way you see that is think of your lottery ticket. You spend money on a ticket with numbers, and then there's a draw of randomly pulled numbers, and if you match, you win a prize. So you can only do that if you comply with state regulations that govern the gaming industry. Yes. Basically. Correct. Unless you are a licensed casino or a state <laughs> lottery, you are most likely breaking the law if you are conducting any enterprise that involves those three elements. Or in St. Louis, bingo. <laughs> yeah. I was, or you are a 501c3 charity do, doing it for charitable purposes, and even then you need to talk to your lawyer because some states have yeah. rules about what you can and can't do even as a charity. Yeah, there's certain things you can't. There's also certain things you can do, limitations on what you can give yeah. away, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was when, when I was in band in high school, you know, we, we ran bingo in Colorado, and that's the what you can do in bingo when you're a 501 charity and what you could do when you were a licensed casino because we had, uh, you know, reservation casinos. Um, you know, out there are two entirely different things. Wasn't yes. there a high school that got in trouble for this? Like some high school, this is a long time ago, did like a casino night for the post-prom. Uh, and anybody could, once you, all you do is go to post-prom and you got to have your chips and participate. And they thought, well, we got around it. But you had to pay to get into post-prom. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. And, you know, in the gaming context, it's been a big question for you know, the folks like me who are both gaming nerds and sweepstakes <laughs> lawyers of, well, where do these things like loot boxes stand and in-game purchasing? How does that work? Because if you think about it, um, you're going to pay for a loot box. What you get and what where something drops in a game is by chance. Um, and the critical element has been, well, what is a prize? Mm-hmm. You know, if it's, hey, you're paying money in game and you're going to win an Xbox 360 that gets mailed to your house. That's a pretty you, concrete that's prize. That's a pretty <laughs> concrete prize. Uh, but where do things stand? Like, you know, uh, gun, you know, military packs or extra health, extra XP. Like things that just things exist that in just the game. just exist yeah. and only have value in the game universe. And what we've seen... Again, we didn't have a lot of real definitive court ruling, but it seemed that the way regulators were deciding who to go after and who to leave alone was that as long as what was being won did not have any value outside of the gaming universe, um, that was something they left alone. Now, there was always this interesting side question that the legal nerds debated in bars of, well, we all know that there are these secret secondary markets out there mm-hmm. where people buy and sell things Which are almost with always, real money. <laughs> but those I things are also mean. almost always violations of the license yeah. agreement of the game. Correct. <laughs> so let's put that out that they are violating mm-hmm. the license I may or may not have sold an EverQuest character back <laughs> in the day. <laughs> well, the Entertainment Software Association was asked to comment on this, and this was their quote. Loot boxes are one way that players can enhance the experience that video games offer. I think we'd all agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Contrary to assertions, loot boxes are not gambling. Remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. They have no real-world value. Players always receive something that enhances their experience, and they are entirely optional to purchase. They can enhance the experience for those who choose to use them, but have no impact on those who do not. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I buy that last yeah. part. No, uh, I'm not sure that I do either, and particularly in light of a ninth circuit case that came down just a few months ago at the end of March. It's the Big Fish Casino case, if folks want (laughs) to pull it up. Uh, Big Fish Casino was an online 
casino game where you got free chips, and over the course of the game, when you played, more free chips would drop or be awarded. You know, there were free chip Tuesdays if you logged in and you got them. There were non-purchase ways to get chips to play with in the casino. You could also, of course, purchase chips to mm-hmm. play with in the casino, um, which one lovely lady did to the tune of spending thousands of dollars on chips to play in this casino. Uh, the prizes that you won were more chips to be used in the game. Uh, and she ended up filing a lawsuit, I assume, after going to Gamblers Anonymous and getting cleaned <laughs> up and deciding how she'd been wronged of all the money she lost. And the case was in Washington court to begin with. And I assume Big Fish Casino made just that argument that, hey, first of all, she didn't have to buy chips. You could get chips plenty of other ways other than buying them. So, you know, no consideration. And also no prize because these are coins that only have value within our little casino universe. Um, and when it went up to the Ninth Circuit, uh, the prosecutor made the argument <laughs> that, one— While, yes, there are ways to get them by hanging around, um, it's pretty clear that there is a huge advantage if you're out there spending money to get these chips. Especially if you're playing poker or something where, like, if you get the fat stack at the table, you can bully everybody else out of the game. (laughs) And they also said um, that once you win more chips, that allows you to play in the casino longer. And what the Ninth Circuit said was, hey, that val- there is a value in being able to continue to play for 5 or 10 or 15 hours longer than you otherwise would have. So, yes, there is a prize element here. So you've got your three elements. Um, interestingly, they did not address the issue of the secondary market. Because they said in this particular instance, the terms of service for the game clearly said that you were not supposed to make little side mm-hmm. pack deals. So it was irrelevant. So we didn't really get a good um, court opinion on where a court's going to stand on evidence of there being a secondary market. And to your point, Kirk, almost all of the terms <laughs> of service prohibit it. Yeah. So if there are any game manufacturers out there listening who are concerned <laughs> about how to address that argument, this court case, I think, has just given you a good out. Make sure that your terms of service for the game clearly prohibit any secondary marketing of in-game yeah. features. One of the things I think is interesting, and I, I got to wonder about sort of the things with the loot boxes, I have to wonder if also part of the reason we've seen more loot boxes coming up with games is because of, I think, a lot of gamer general outrage of the pay-to-win arguments. Mm-hmm. And so it's the kind of thing where they look at it and say, you know, yes, you can pay and you can just get more chips, which does make it easier to win. You can be the bully at the table, whatever it is. The way to get around that is to say, well, there's now a chance, there's this secondary thing which you don't have to pay for or which you pay less for, which could give you that same advantage. So that way when you you play against somebody who has, you know, this you know spiffy, unique hat you have to buy, um, they could have won it. So therefore, you can't necessarily say it's a pure pay-to-win type of scenario. Mm-hmm. If that may have led to some of the rise of the loot boxes, but in the course of doing that, they're actually now opening on themselves up to a second problem, which is this mm-hmm. is-it-gambling question. <laughs> yeah, it's also interesting, this, this particular, we should say what the FTC does. It's the Federal Trade Commission, right? It's supposed yeah, to be a consumer watchdog organization yes, at the federal the level. they are the federal consumer protection arm of the government. And I mean, this is the group that's presently in charge of a 
enforcing uh, like the net neutrality rules and stuff Correct. like that. Yep. They yes. weren't. They 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 weren't. Then they were. <laughs> then they weren't. Yeah. So, <laughs> so so that's what they do. The FTC um, and the <clears throat> FCC often have jurisdictional battles. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think net neutrality was what, the latest one of those. I don't think it's over. It's a whole separate episode we're going <laughs> to yeah. do at some yeah, point. We've talked about doing that as an episode yeah. at some point in time. Yep. Well, so the, the, the senator, Senator Hassan, who who brought this up, her concern is that children are being you know psychologically conditioned for gambling and stuff like that, and that other countries regulate these things. Uh, my first thought in response to that was, we already have COPPA. You know, we already have a Children Online Protection uh, and Privacy Act. So, you know, in theory, kids shouldn't be able to put money into buying loot boxes without at least some yeah. level of minimal parent knowledge or opportunity yeah. for I knowledge. I know some of the games yeah. like my kids play, you know, when they play the online games, there is one way to put money into the account and that's, you know, it takes my fingerprint, you yep. know, stuff like that to access the, the pay thing for it. And it's not something where like you can buy loot boxes or anything along those lines. You know, yes, there's random events or things you can get, but if you subscribe to the game, you just get, you know, here's X number of gold coins yep. and you can spend them on, you know, things you can spend them on that are anything and even if you never put one cent into the game, you're going to get a bunch of this stuff anyway. It just yeah. allows you to get it faster, basically. And then the FTC, this is a, a federal investigation, but these anti-gambling laws mostly exist at the state level. So mm-hmm. we may see the feds come in and set some rules down. And then, Charla, h- how does that relate to the states? Like, once once people violate, assuming they do, violate these future federal regulations, does that give the states more arguments to come in and say, well, look, the feds say you are done something wrong, so... Yes, I think it does. Now, it's not not a direct because you violated a federal law you have therefore automatically violated a state gambling law but if i'm a state attorney general and i see that the ftc has already come down on you for something uh that's gonna make my job yeah. a whole lot easier in bringing charges against you it sounds like the feds are going to look into this primarily from the the kid perspective yep. which you know mm-hmm. that's one issue but i mean gambling is illegal in most states, regardless of your age. So. I believe there's pretty much one state it's legal in, yeah. and then a few, a few smaller areas. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, uh, th- that's an interesting topic. We could talk about that forever. Uh, but we're, we're going to uh, move on and talk about rights of publicity. Uh, that's one of the things we talked about in our last episode uh, involving the uh, NCAA football game, that a video game, which was canceled uh, because um, – if you haven't listened to an episode, go check it out. But basically, the court said you have to uh, get license uh, or, or license uh, likeness rights from the players. Mm-hmm. Uh, EA said we'd be happy to. The NCAA said you can't. Uh, the players <laughs> said that's an antitrust. The court said yes, it is. And then uh, everybody lost. <laughs> yes, pretty much everybody lost. And again, if you haven't listened to that episode, that is our immediately prior episode that we talked about. We touched on it earlier. It was a very popular episode, apparently. Um, it's probably not a bad idea, if you haven't listened to it, to go back and listen to it because I Obviously, we're going to be talking a lot about the same kind of legal things here. Yeah. Um, and I think Char's going to put some interesting spins on this um, and go into some of the uh, uh, the places that, that I'm not sure brain publicity we necessarily thought was originally going to go. No. <laughs> we, we talked before about the, the Baby Murloc case where a Blizzard employee um, was asked, uh, like a casting call went out. Charlie, have you heard of this one? A no, casting I call. Not. Went out uh, in, in Blizzard saying we need people to come in and do some voice acting for some some sound effects. And an employee said, that sounds fun, and, and went and did it. Uh, at some point, uh, much later on, was no longer employed by Blizzard, I think. 
um, and then filed a lawsuit against Blizzard, uh, violating her right of publicity in the sound effect that she made, which was a baby murloc. And yeah. if you know what a baby huh. murloc sounds like, it sounds like blah, 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 blah. Yeah. It's a fish, it's a fish it. Yeah, it's a fish sound. Um, so she lost uh, because Blizzard owns the copyright, and uh, the Ninth Circuit said that uh, any right of publicity claims are preempted by the Copyright Act and the sound recording, and that was that. And that's a long line of cases that goes back to Nancy Sinatra and other people. Um, but uh, Charlotte, why don't you talk to us a little bit about what rights of publicity are, why we have them, and uh, some fun cases. Sure. So the basic of the right of publicity is, and again, this is something that's recognized in most states either by a statute that specifically sets it down or by case law, is that every person, not just celebrities, owns the rights in their name, voice, likeness, persona, anything that could be considered to identify them. So that persona one, people always ask me about, well, what's a persona? And there's actually an interesting case that I like to use to describe it. So some of our listeners might remember this car commercial. It was in the early 90s. Uh, There was a car commercial. I can't remember the make of the car. I want to say maybe it was uh, a Honda. But the whole thing was about the reliability of the car and how long it was going to run. You know, this car is going to last forever. And the last scene of the commercial was this car on a stage of a Wheel of Fortune set being offered as a prize. And right next to the board with all the letters was an Android C-3PO looking figure (laughs) with a blonde wig and an evening gown on. And Vanna White promptly sued. (laughs) (laughs) We've talked about this before. This is is Vanna White. So this is Vanna White. She promptly sued and said, hey, you have appropriated my persona. And, uh, of course, the car company said, no, we didn't. There's not a single picture of you. Nobody said Vanna White. Nobody used your voice. Go away. And the court said, come on. Who else wears <laughs> evening gowns and has long blonde hair and flips letters, letters on a game show? I think it's the flips letters is the key yeah. component of it. The evening gown and the long blonde hair is probably reasonably yeah. common. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, another more recent one was Michael Jordan's lawsuit. I don't know oh, if you yeah. guys have talked about that. Uh, but Dominic's Grocery Stores, after Michael Jordan was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame, ran a full-page ad, and all it had was a picture of a basketball court and a pair of black and red Air Jordans with a number 23 on the side, and it said in very general terms, greatness is all these things, it's determination, it's commitment, it's blah, blah, blah. Congratulations from one Chicago committed Chicago native to another, or something along those lines. So, never said Michael Jordan. Clearly, being very never careful. Had a picture. Yeah. They clearly were very careful not to mention Michael Jordan, and of course, Michael Jordan sued. And they said, "Well, hey, never mentioned your name. There's not even your likeness anywhere." It's and a pair of shoes, yeah. It's and the number a pair twenty-three, of shoes yeah, with the number twenty-three. And again, the court said, "Come on." Who else (laughs) plays basketball when you see a basketball court and red and black shoes and the number 23? In Chicago? In Chicago. Who else would you think of? So 
Um, I would be interested to see in that Blizzard case, you know, one of the arguments I would make if I'm Blizzard's lawyer is get 15 of this girl's friends into a room and have them listen to that sound. Can they really identify that, oh, yeah, that's my friend Megan's voice. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> that's obviously. exactly her trademark fish sound. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, and I think that's part of the reason why you get into those kind of things. There's a lot of argument in that that literally nobody knew it was her, and that's yeah. the argument there was mm-hmm. no right of violation because it's, there is no association with it, whereas, mm-hmm. again, talk about that Michael Jordan case, talk about it, it's very clear who you're referencing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that sort of thing. Sort of the immediate one that sort of jumps to mind is if somebody was to put, you know, a green and black indie car up and, you know, refer to, you know, female indie car drivers, it's pretty clear we know who you're mm-hmm. talking about. Yeah. <laughs> How many are there? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So why do we have these rights of publicity in the first place? We're just trying to prevent people who are you know, have like a famous brand from being taken advantage of or Yep. So it's to prevent companies from taking advantage of people's rights. You know, when you think about celebrities, think about the value of Michael Jordan's contract with Nike. I don't know that they've ever disclosed the number, but he makes an absurd amount of money (laughs) selling his image, his persona, his likeness. So if other companies can just walk right out there and use it without getting permission, that dilutes the value of his brand. Um, It could also, you know, piss Nike off if Reebok (laughs) were to go and take it, Um, which actually is what kicked off one of the cases that I wanted to talk about, uh, which is in the social media context. And it's one of the most famous social media litigation cases Mm -hmm. that's happened thus far. Um, I think I had value to my job as a social media (laughs) attorney. You know, I'd been pitching to people that social media law is important. And then the Catherine Heigl case came along and suddenly all my clients really believed me. So, (laughs) Because you've been doing the social media is a thing thing for a long time. Social media was really a common household word. Oh yeah, back before Facebook had cover photos, I was doing social media law. well, talk about the Katherine Heigl case. Yeah. So for those who aren't familiar, Katherine Heigl one day was walking in New York, went to a Dwayne Reed store, bought a bunch of stuff, walked out of the store with two big bags of, full of Dwayne Reed products. So for those of us who are, are we Midwesterners, what is Wee Dwayne Mid- Reed? Yeah. <laughs> a Dwayne Reed is similar to a Walgreens or a CVS. So general, you know, drugstore with groceries and makeup. Yep. And, hair tchotchkes. Um, So a paparazzi photographer snapped a picture of her walking across the street with her bags leaving the store. I think the picture got sold to TMZ or one of the other gossip sites. They posted it on their Twitter account. And then Dwayne Reed saw it and got super excited and immediately tweeted it out themselves with a tweet that said, at Katherine Heigl, of course they tagged her because they wanted to get all of her followers followers as well. (laughs) Even at Katherine Heigl can't resist a good Dwayne Reed run for some makeup and other goodies. You should check us out. Hashtag Katherine Heigl. <laughs> Hashtag yeah. like it's other things. got issues beyond just right to publicity. Like, mm-hmm. you don't actually know why she was cold. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For all you know. <laughs> well, you know, she's it was really run. cold and she didn't want to walk all the way to Walk yeah. Or she's buying something yeah. from a friend at their request. Or, yep. You know, yep. And the other thing with it is, I think it's important to point out, this was a paparazzi photo. I mean, this yeah. is something that these So there's also guys, a copyright yeah. issue because <laughs> Dwayne Reed did not own that photo. And no, TMZ did. A, no, exactly. And it's a commercial use. Uh, so, yeah, it was fraught with peril to begin with. <laughs> uh, but, of course, Catherine Heigl 
sees this and because um, they tagged her. Yes. <laughs> they tagged her, yeah. <laughs> sees this and then fairly shortly thereafter gets a call from the lawyers over at CVS where she has an exclusive endorsement deal. Whoops. <laughs> and they say, WTF. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> so even if she had wanted to resolve it in a nice manner at that point, I don't think she had yeah. an option to resolve yeah. it in a nice manner. So she had her lawyers promptly send a take it down now request to Dwayne Reed. Uh, we don't really know the details, but for some reason, said take it down now request was ignored. And after the deadline of take it down now or else lapsed. Uh, <laughs> or else happened. Yeah. Well, or else happened. The take it down now and, always has a bye clause. Yes. <laughs> and promptly after the expiration of their grace period, Dwayne Reed got sued by Katherine Heigl for over $7 million. Yikes. One tweet. I'm guessing that that number bears some relationship to the value of her exclusive with CVS. I suspect that it does. I think it was very easy for her to make. To quantify her loss? To quantify yeah. her loss for the uh, non-consensual use of her image. So the case ended up settling out of court for an undisclosed amount. <laughs> this is more normal settlement. This is settlement, a more normal yeah. settlement. The undisclosed amount is more than zero and slightly less than seven million, yes. most likely. <laughs> and I believe there was a charitable contribution to one of her supported charities sure, yeah. as part of it so that you know, the little people got some good done in the world, too. I'm glad they're thinking of us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Catherine Heigl has a heart, Ben. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I never, never would have said otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we don't know exactly how much it ended up costing Dwayne Reed, but I mean, they were on the cover of every paper in the country getting sued by Catherine Heigl, and I'm sure their lawyer bill was not small. <laughs> no, probably less than seven million dollars and greater than zero. Well, and most social media accounts are, are are not run by lawyers and things, especially on Twitter, which is all real time. You're not going to screen. If you stopped and asked your lawyer about every tweet in advance, you may as well not be on Twitter. <laughs> Truth. Yeah, yeah. I think the, the interesting thing about it, and it's you know, I've heard Charlotte give presentations before and talk about this case, and you know, I know when you do these like, you know, this is the podcast. <laughs> we don't have a video component, but when you see you know the tweet that you know pops up, you know, because you have copies of the actual tweet and the. Um, the things like that. It's it's one of those where when you look at this, it's one of these things where anybody who's on Twitter, you can see this happening yeah. so easily. Mm-hmm. And to know that, you know, as you said, one tweet resulted essentially in a $7 million lawsuit. And you got to kind of look at it from the other side and going like, wait a minute, what do we do? Like, you know, exactly. we just retweeted something. Yeah. And I mean, if you think about someone who's not familiar with the concept of publicity rights, they're going to think, what did I do wrong? I didn't lie. There she is. Yeah, I'm just describing things that actually happened. Of course. Yeah. She literally bought all this stuff at our store <laughs> and we tweeted about it. How could this possibly be wrong? Yeah. And, and I think that's the most interesting thing about it. I think that's a lot of it so for us to get into here is, you know, when if you're on Twitter, you're on any of these social media sites, you know, a lot of times fans, you know, and can things is you know, you're going to repost, hey, look, the new trailer just came out. You know, we're going to repost. Mm-hmm. Here's this trailer. And a lot of times those are not necessarily the official YouTube video for the trailer because mm-hmm. somebody may have gotten it a hold of time or this is the Japanese one. It's not supposed to be on YouTube. But how many yeah. fake trailers have you and I been taken in by? <laughs> <laughs> 
a few, a couple of which are really actually pretty I good. I called you over for that one. I'm like, Kirk, this looks amazing. Episode eight. And we're like, wait a minute. This, <laughs> this is, isn't real. This is a video game. Uh, yeah, and of course, with those things, you know, you have all the traditional IP rights issues, the trademark yeah. infringement, the copyright infringement. But I think where the line gets crossed with publicity rights is when it's a commercial use. So if I were to just tweet out on my personal Twitter account a picture of Katherine Heigl leaving Dwayne Reed and just yeah. say, OMG, look <laughs> whose foot I stepped on yep. at Dwayne Reed. Yeah. Entirely different what about than TMZ? when a company... I mean, they're making a commercial use, but it's a different but kind of use. Different kind of use. So like their business is reporting on, you know, I'm going to editorialize, mindless so, celebrity gossip, right? True. And they hide a lot behind that editorial news reporting defense the mm. same way as they probably do for copyright issues. Yeah. I mean, news yeah. reporting is a for-profit enterprise for the most part, too. It's all, and it's yeah, all, it's it's all like The New York Times does not make money. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think courts have distinguished between, you know, yes, the New York Times... They don't give their paper away for free. Yep. Uh, but there's a difference between Catherine Heigl's picture in a story in the New York Times and the New York Times running an ad for their subscription special mm-hmm. with a picture of Catherine Heigl on a bus bench reading the New York Times. Yep. Yeah. It's like, come on, you clearly <laughs> crossed the line at that point. Yeah, and I think that's the thing with it is you sort of look at the TMZ use of this and you say, hey, there's a newsworthiness exception. You know, yeah, and that that is a sort of accepted thing in publicity is that somebody who's newsworthy and obviously a celebrity mm-hmm. is newsworthy regardless of whether they're especially you know, for anything. TMZ, which is the yeah, sole purpose for being. On, yeah. You know, um, and and I think, I think you get into a lot of that. You know, yeah, there's there's a very clear line there that you can't say for everything, but where does it get away from this is news? And that's the argument where they where it's it wasn't the fact that they reposted a picture; it's the text they put underneath it mm-hmm. that was clearly saying this is an ad for us even though at the same time they weren't misstating what the picture showed yeah like would it, mm-hmm. would it have come out differently if the if Dwayne Reed had just retweeted the picture and said nothing yeah so I deal with these issues with clients all the time um, and it kind of depends on where your risk spectrum is I think the FTC's position is that they are going to look at anything that a commercial enterprise does on its social channels as default commercial activity. Mm -hmm. Because why else would you bother? Why would you hire these 22-year-old kids at 60 grand a year to run your Facebook account <laughs> unless your entire purpose in having a Facebook and a Twitter account is, is to sell your product? <laughs> You're not just out there to be a, a nice guy and a citizen just of the adding social Adding valuable universe. Twitter content. <laughs> 280 <laughs> characters at a time. Hey, it's, all, it's all archived in the Library of Congress now. <laughs> so for most advertisers, it is an uphill battle to demonstrate that anything that you do on your social media page is simply news commentary. Uh, Now, I have had clients that are willing to take a risk a little bit, and you get kind of that middle of the road. So, for example, um, when the court decisions came down legalizing same-sex marriage, there were lots of brands that engaged and showed pictures of couples walking Mm -hmm. out of the courthouse together, celebrity couples walking out of courthouses together, all in the spirit of, hey, we support gay rights. We, you know, um, I think much more of a gray area, and you've probably got a much better argument if the FTC comes knocking that, hey, this wasn't about selling our product. Now, if I'm the FTC, I'm going to say, 
well, why would you bother? Yeah. You know? You want to look like a nice guy because... Mm -hmm. Finish my sentence. Yeah. You want (laughs) to sell more products. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not as direct. So, you know, I think with social media, the FTC, you know, they find folks and they make examples of them. Um, There are certain celebrities that you probably don't want to poke the bear on. So <laughs> I would recommend not taking a risk with Katherine Heigl or Michael Jordan. Notoriously private celebrities like Harrison Ford. Or anything owned by Disney. Yes. Let's just stay away from that purposely. I think we learned that earlier. away from Star Wars. Let me give you one more what if. What if Dwayne Reed had themselves bought the photo and then they gave it to TMZ and let TMZ run with the story? Hmm. So... If tricky, 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 tricky. <laughs> ben so wants to be a We're actually <laughs> getting into another very interesting issue um, that I won't get too far down the rabbit hole, but that gets into something called native marketing, where there is content on social and on the internet that to the end user would appear to be very organic, mm-hmm. news reporting, unbiased content. But little do you know, in the back end, a brand has specifically paid for it, provided the content, approved the content in advance. And the FTC has recently come out with some additional guidance on what disclosures are required when that activity is going on. Well, we saw like a, a version of that with the last election and all of the um, the, the bots and all that kind of yeah. stuff promoting certain content. This seems mm-hmm. to be an issue that's going to get worse before it gets Yeah, better. they're definitely, I think, one of the big issues you bump into with this as well is the idea of, you know, like likes, you know, people mm-hmm. liking pages. Mm-hmm. And I mean, obviously pages can be liked by bots. Yeah. You know, you can buy likes effectively. I think that, you know, that's not, I'm not, I'm not letting the word, you know, like, the, like raising the curtain on things people don't know here. But, you know, that type of stuff with it is that you bump into and you say, well, the reason the page is so liked is because the person who did it bought likes. Now it's associated with something commercial. Wait a minute. Is that organic? Is that not organic? What's going on here? Well, I, I tried a couple years ago, just a sort of a, a thought experiment for myself to make a Twitter account never produce a single piece of original content and see how many followers I could get. It took me less than a month of just retweeting and liking things to develop a 1,000 followers. And that's wow. me just when I got up in the morning and I'm brushing my teeth, retweeting and liking a couple things in a certain industry within a month, a thousand followers. At that point, I was like, this is ludicrously easy if I can do it with a couple minutes a day. I've got you one better. You don't even have to be a real human being. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I was at an advertising law conference a few weeks ago, and one of the sessions that was most popularly attended was on uh, bot. Twitter users and their avatars. So there is one, and I cannot remember her name, but she's this avatar who's not a real person. She has a fake car and a fake dog and a fake <laughs> life, and she has quite lucrative endorsement contracts mm-hmm. with several yeah. companies <laughs> to endorse their products. And one of the things that the FTC representative who was there was talking about was, you know, where's the line for disclosure. First of all, do you have to disclose to the followers that this isn't a real woman? Um, And then where does it cross the line with her endorsements? You know, I think a bot can probably endorse a rapper and talk about how much she loves the music, Mm -hmm. but can a bot endorse 
shampoo and talk about how fantastic it makes her hair. Well, it's impossible. Yeah. Along those lines, <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the is there some head, deception there? Presumably putting shampoo on the bot might cause a short circuit. <laughs> Along those lines, though, if the bot's not a real person, what's to stop somebody else from reusing the bot? There's no right of publicity, right? Because yeah. it's not a real There's person. There's not a right of publicity. It's, well, I... I wonder if this is another place where technology is outpacing the law. Well, I think in most places technology outpaces the law. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is the latest one. You know, we think about in-game. There are very, very popular in-game characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was that? There was a commercial. It was... Ozzy Osbourne as a WoW character. Yes. Do you remember that yeah. commercial? Yeah, it's a Snickers commercial, isn't it? You're not, isn't oh, it? Isn't it? You're, it's you're not yourself you're when, not you're, yourself. when yeah. you're hungry. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was where that came from. There have been a couple that have done that with like, uh, I forget, there's a name for that style of animation where you're using like an in-game modeling system. Like mm-hmm. South Park did a whole episode using it. Uh, yeah. Well, and that kind of gets back to the NCAA case we just talked about where the players were all represented by in-game avatars that match their build, skin tone, uh, facial features, uh, jersey numbers, hometown, biographical information, yeah. but not their names. Yeah, and even specific yeah, gear, like the no. way their face yeah. mask is built. Yeah, and, stuff and like they're that. like, nope, that, that's you, and everybody <laughs> yeah. would know it uh, if, if they're paying attention. So mm-hmm. it seems like it, it seems clear from that case that um, you know, real people at least have some scope of publicity rights to online avatars that represent them. But then that raises other questions. Is it? Is it? Can a right of publicity prevent you from making a fictional use of a real person? So if I wanted to write a a dystopian novel set ten years from now and talk <laughs> about things that have not yet taken place in our government, but say that they did. Uh, we have a very reality TV uh, savvy president right now. We do. Um, might he, after he leaves office, uh, take umbrage at oh. such a story and, and decide to assert his rights of publicity? He, <laughs> didn't we just say making science fiction? Yeah, we just talked about that. <laughs> is, isn't that what we just? I mean, what you just described in this is is science fiction, science taking fiction. something real world, moving it a little bit, you know, making yeah. some assumptions and going forward and speculating. This is the this is the core of science fiction. Are we looking at it and saying there's now potentially an argument that says science fiction violates right of publicity if you use real people? <laughs> you use real people. <laughs> you know, I think it's. It's a tougher case to make when you're talking about literature. And a politician, too. And a politician and a very public figure. Because traditionally, literature, while yes, there again, why does anybody write a book? Presumably to contribute to the zeitgeist, but also <laughs> to pay the electric bill. Yeah. <laughs> the sales so we, we, we have a well-entrenched idea of artistic license. You can make a lot of g- general uses of, of real people in ways that are clearly fictional. Yeah. Like Kurt yes. Vonnegut would often include real people in his books. And mm-hmm. Well, and obviously if you're going to do something like, hey, I want to write a crime thriller that's set now – I need the president to be the president. I can't make up some yep. president. I can't yeah. meet. I need real people to exist in it just to set the setting of what time period it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think in the literary context, there's a lot more wiggle room. Yeah. Um, you do have to be careful, you know, in that context of, you know, what's going on right now, that you don't cross the line into slander mm-hmm. and defamation and that kind of stuff. So have you guys yeah. seen Futurama? Yeah. I love Futurama. So I'm thinking of the Presidential Head Museum. <laughs> <laughs> Most of them are dead. So yes. sort Abraham of, Lincoln I guess, sort of solves concerned. that problem. But, you know, well, they're not all dead. No. And interestingly, uh, depending on what state you are in, your publicity rights yeah. survive yep. after you die. Like, I mean, El- doesn't Elvis is a state? Yeah, Elvis, Elvis is, is a state. state. Marilyn Monroe is a state. Yeah. Uh, still make millions of dollars a year off of 
their likeness. Yeah. Now, in some states, there is no postmortem publicity right. There was actually uh, one of the big uh, Supreme Court cases on publicity rights was an argument over Marilyn Monroe's domicile at the time she died. That's the thing I would New say. Is which state would govern it? Yeah. Because one state recognized postmortem publicity <laughs> rights and the other one didn't. <laughs> so it's one of those things you got to be careful about. Um, states also vary a lot in how you get permission to make commercial commercial use of someone's image. In some states, it's enough if you've got your camera phone to walk up and say, hey, Ben, is it cool if I take a video of you to use in my commercial? And you say, yeah, sure, go for it. That's sufficient. Other states require there to either be a writing, you've got to sign mm-hmm. a release with Ben Siders. Um, others recognize a less formal passive consent. So either you got to sign something or you've got to affirmatively say, Yes. Or in some states, just me putting up a sign at an event that says, hey, we're recording a commercial here today. If you walk in. in, You've probably seen these (laughs) at cons. Um, If you walk in, you are agreeing to... There's a reason certain cons take place in certain states. (laughs) There's a reason I avoid certain cons (laughs) as a professional attorney who would like to maintain her image. One of the things I think is interesting when you just commented about it, and you're thinking about this, you know, Marilyn Monroe's the concern of where she's domiciled, where, you're de- where she dies. So one of the concerns is if you want to leave your likeness rights to your children, what state you die in matters. Yeah. You know, you're sort of sitting here and you're like, you know, wait a minute. Now you need to worry about what state I'm living in based That's upon morbid, the laws. That's like, Do you need to put in your living trust? Like, yeah. if, if, I, if I go unconscious, move my carcass somewhere else before <laughs> well, I die. That won't work. It's the state of your residency at the time oh, of okay. your death. Well, if you're unconscious, you can't establish an intent to remain anywhere. So. Yeah. Well, but obviously you can have, I mean, you're for purposes of residency, you know, do I decide that, you know, I'm going to be a resident of California. I'm going to buy a house in California, even though I have no intention of living there so that my heirs can have yeah. rights to my likeness, you know. <laughs> you know, there's, I mean, if you think about it, like, that's just a weird trust in estates question, you know. <laughs> I never thought when we started this episode we'd wind up talking about trust in estates and establishing where you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's, and, and maybe that's a good sort of thing to say for some of this. And I think that's part of the reason, you know, and, and I know like when, you know, Charlotte, I, we, we talked about this earlier. One of the reasons I like this, this sort of topic as to what it is, is because this topic is becoming something that's just kind of permeating everything. Well, it didn't used to be a big deal. Yeah. You know, and the, the sort of, you know, the user-generated content world, you know, the Twitter, the Facebooks, the YouTubes, and I mean, particularly YouTube, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, which is out there. Everybody's a star now. It used to be that yep. stars were clearly defined. That, that's the thing. And you look at, you know, your streamers, your game streamers, your personalities. My my kids are all into something called AWSD, which is some sort of Minecraft streamer. Don't Google it. Don't look it up. It, it is it is mindless nonsense. Sorry, ASWD, but I, I think that's what you're going for. Um, my kids love it. They eat it up. But... Uh, huh. You know, the people who do this are establishing a brand. They're establishing a personality. They're establishing these personas. They've got online Minecraft characters that have a certain look, and my kids want to look like them. So they go download the AW, ASW, whatever, I can't remember the order now, ASWD skins so that their Minecraft characters look like these avatars of these ah. guys doing YouTube streaming. <laughs> you know, and you, you it, it's not a big leap to say there's merchandising and other sponsorship opportunities there for these guys. You know, can can you establish some sort of uh, right of publicity in a Minecraft character persona? 
that is you. It's your voice, it's, that, but it's a made-up personality. It's not really you. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Vanna White case is, is close. Vanna White obviously is more than a, a blonde woman who turns letters, mm-hmm. but that's what you know her for. Yeah. Exactly. You know? So if, if that's enough to infringe her right of publicity, you know, can, can I not go out and make an ASWD thing to sell without infringing the right of publicity in this character? Yeah. And I think this is an area where the, the world, we talk about you know, so the law catching up to the world, we have seen the world change dramatically. And I mean, you know, it's one of my like, favorite statistics that I heard at one point in time with it when they talk about YouTube. Um, and I remember hearing the, the, the quote that they said that currently every seven minutes there is more content uploaded to YouTube than has existed on broadcast TV in history. That's insane. Wow. You know, and it's like, assuming that that's a you know, true statement as to what it is, that's an incredible amount of content. Um, and how much of it's viewed? How many things on the, how many stuff, stuff on YouTube has never mm-hmm. been viewed? I remember there used to be a pan, I think it was a Pandora, like there was a system you could do for like one of the online streaming services. Yeah. And it was Pandora that literally was you listened to songs that had never been played on Pandora, and as soon as you listened to it, it was removed from their playlist forever. Wow! Because it was yeah. only things that had never been listened <laughs> to, um, and it's like this, you know these these kind of things where it's like there's just so much content, it's so permeating. Everybody's out there. What does that mean? So do you think that, so the, the the right of publicity may be the last of the major forms of IP that does not yet have a comprehensive federal scheme? We have a Trade Secrets Act now. Finally, uh, finally. Charles, what, what do you think? Is that is that coming someday? I'm wondering if that may arrive in the. I'm also thinking of some of the more the darker corners of the web, things like revenge porn and stuff like that, where mm-hmm. copyright doesn't really work because the cameraman usually owns All the. the you know, so there's you know I'm thinking there may be sort of a like the states are dealing with this piecemeal. Maybe mm-hmm. that plus data privacy. These seem to be things that are heading towards a comprehensive federal regulatory scheme. I. You know, I think it's something we're probably going to have to get to if the world continues to evolve the way it is. I think my question is going to be who's going to take it? You know, how is the FTC going to assert jurisdiction? In theory, you know, with most of the testimonials and endorsements, they can assert jurisdiction because they can say, mm-hmm. hey, we have to protect consumers. We need to make sure it's clear to consumers that when someone uses somebody else's persona that the consumer yep. knows what the terms of the deal were. But I wonder how they're going to make an argument that they get jurisdiction over just private citizen, non-consumer transaction related yep. use of rights. So maybe, so then maybe it's the patent trademark office? That's what I was yeah. thinking. Do you do what the Lanham Act did and just say, we're going to create a private cause of action and let the private market sort this out because well, philosophically, trademarks are a consumer protection technique as well. But the federal government never really you know, enforces them at all. We leave mm-hmm. it to the private market to decide which things are worth enforcing. So maybe something like that would work for right of publicity. I don't know. It's yeah. interesting. Yeah. And I mean, to Kirk's point, as you think about it, you know, 15 years ago, if a company wanted to make a commercial, they had to go out and they had to hire actors. Yeah. Um, they had to have auditions. If they wanted to do, do a collage ad with user-generated content, that meant asking people <laughs> to mail in physical photographs yeah, yeah. versus now if you want 15 pe- pictures of people visiting Disney World for Disney World to use in a collage ad they can get all that in three seconds mm-hmm. yeah easily on a filtered Twitter search yep. 
All right. Well, we could probably wrap this up. Uh, Charla, thank you so much for coming. This was one of our most fascinating discussions. <laughs> we always we have kind of jumped Charla all around on. the legal world today. Well, you kind of have to with this stuff. I mean, everything kind of bleeds into the next thing. Yeah, and that's, I think, you know, again, I think that's one of the things I like about this is this is an area that really is starting to bleed into everything and you know, mm-hmm. sort of everything we do. And I mean, as we said, you know, we got into trust in estates law. Yeah. I mean, you know, when are we going to get into <laughs> stuff like that? You know, where do you want to die? I think I now understand why the last episode was so popular. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, a, it's a deep topic. All right. Well, uh, our next episode is is still a bit up in the air. We're working to bring in um, some more guests, but we don't have anything concrete yet. So you'll just have to tune in and see. It'll be a surprise to us as well. (laughs) Exactly. Yep. All right. There's the music. It's time to go. If you have questions, comments, topic ideas, criticisms, complaints, remarks, adulations, or rants. Or want to hire us as a sponsor. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Or you can send your thoughts to us on Twitter at LGGpod or email us at LGGpodcast at gmail.com. You can also talk to us on our Facebook page, search for Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, and find us there. Subscribe to this podcast on one or more of the platforms, or all of the platforms. You can inflate our listenership. Uh, We are on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and the other places where you get your podcast content. If you like what you hear, give us a review. Reviews are how we attract more listeners by making it easier for others to find us. You can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders. Kirk is at KirkDMN. Charlotte, do you have a Twitter account? Or any other place people can... at Charlotte Claypool. There you go, at Charlotte Claypool. All right, that's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. 